Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center at McGill University. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Emily Browner, a lecturer in environmental history and African history at Edinburgh University. Dr. Brownell received a PhD in these disciplines from the University of Texas at Austin in 2012 and has spent time as an assistant professor at the University of Northern Colorado and as a visiting scholar at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. She is the author of several book chapters and journal articles, including in publications such as Current Anthropology, Global Environment and Environmental History. She is currently working on a project entitled Stories from the Substrate, which aims to narrate East African history from the soil through a variety of case studies of how people, animals, and plants have made and remade the region in the last century. Today, she has joined us to discuss her book, Gone to Ground, A History of Environment and Infrastructure in Dar es Salaam, which was published in 2020 with the University of Pittsburgh Press. Dr. Brownell, thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here virtually. <laughs> Absolutely, virtually. Um, just to start off, could you just please discuss your book, Gone to Ground? What were your inspirations? Uh, what were your aims? Uh, what were you hoping to contribute to historiography? Or essentially, what is the significance of going to ground in the environmental history of Dar es Salaam? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm always a little jealous when people have good origin stories for their projects. Um, uh, I don't know that I necessarily do. Um, as a grad student, um, I was trying to figure out what my project should be and was kind of struggling quite a bit. I thought at first I wanted to do a project on uh, specifically waste and waste histories um, someplace in urban Africa. Um, and I didn't necessarily settle on Tanzania out of any sort of particular intellectual pursuit at first. I think I was interested in Tanzania as a socialist history. Um, I also think that the historiography of Dar es Salaam um, is really vibrant. So I was able to sort of picture the city in a lot of ways when learning about it from, from the classroom. So I went there um, thinking I wanted to do a project on waste to kind of survey the landscape and survey the archives. And, um, I, I kind of got stuck when I got there. I didn't really know how I was going to make that project work. I think I was a bit seduced by, by the kind of metaphors of waste and the metaphors of thinking with waste. And then when I actually got there and um, was kind of looking at the archives, I didn't know how I would really make a substantial project out of that that would do something new. Um, but I was still interested in kind of thinking about materials and environments in the city. And um, so from there, I sort of scoped out and thought, okay, what would it look like to do a urban environmental history of Dar es Salaam? And um, when I looked for models of that, um, I couldn't really find any that had been done of an African city. Um, and even more broadly, I had a tough time finding monographs uh, in environmental history. Obviously other disciplines had tackled similar subjects like geographers and anthropologists, but a monograph in environmental history about uh, a sort of quote unquote global South city. Um, so 
that's kind of became my starting point was what if, what would it look like to do that, to write an environmental history from Dar es Salaam? Um, and, you know, quite ambitiously, I think my initial uh, inspiration was probably Cronin's Nature's Metropolis. Like, what would it be to think, I, I think specifically what I liked about Cronin's book was this idea of thinking about the material of city making. So I wasn't as interested in thinking about categories of nature or um, thinking about nature and what it means and definitions of it. I was very nervous of sort of importing a lot of Western ideas if I if I did that in this pro project because I didn't necessarily find it in my archives. So I wanted to do then a sort of, you know, provisioning story a bit of how did, um, you know, the hinterlands and the periphery of, of Dar es Salaam sort of make the city. So that was maybe the first jumping off point for me. Um, I also became quite stuck on, on doing the 1970s and the 1980s. So for an environmental history, I actually think my book takes on a very small chunk of time. I think one of the things that environmental historians do really admirably is to take on really large chunks of time and narrate them historically. Um, but I think I was really interested in and actually just focusing on the 70s and, and basically the end of the socialist era, which comes in 1985 when uh, President Nereri steps down. Um, the problem is, is that's a period that's incredibly hard to find in the National Archives in Tanzania. So um, all of a sudden me thinking, oh, gee, no one's done this before. Like, let me do this. It became quite clear why a lot of people have not um, tackled that time period as much. And there's more work focused on the 1960s. Um, so it took, you know, me sort of figuring out, okay, I need to ask people about this. I need to do some oral histories. I need to, you know, read newspapers. And of course that's not a novel idea in Tanzanian historiography. Newspapers for Tanzania are an incredibly vibrant source. And a lot of people have turned to them and, and made such good um, work out of, out of reading newspapers. Um, so I thought I could pull it off in the end if I sort of gathered an archive from um, a bunch of different places and use, you know, a fair amount of gray literature, as I say in here. So um, kind of policy documents and reports and case studies as well to talk about the urban environment in Dar on top of the newspapers and the oral history. I'd say that's kind of where I started or, or sort of uh, began writing my dissertation was, okay, I'm going to take these, you know, I'm going to talk about how people come to the city. I'm going to talk about housing. I'm going to talk about food. I'm going to talk about waste. Um, I was profoundly dissatisfied with my dissertation when it was done. And it took me a while to get excited about it again. And I think my time at Max Planck really helped shape what is now the book. Um, so I went from um, these kinds of familiar categories, which are still there, obviously, I think in the construction of the book, but tried to figure out what angle I wanted to take on the particular chapters and abandoned any sense of needing to do, I think, a more traditional environmental history of the city. So I said, okay, what, what's exciting for me in these newspapers and in this stuff, and how can I kind of shape chapters that I think narrate 
how someone living in Dar es Salaam in the 1970s and 80s might have engaged with their environment and thought about it. And it wasn't, you know, really about the environment, but it was about how do you live in a city at a time when um, the state is really withdrawing um, much in terms of establishing or developing infrastructure? How do you make life possible in, in, mo in very fundamental ways? So um, that's kind of how I think things shifted from my dissertation to the book project was, how can I make each chapter thematically um, touch on what I imagine to be a sort of profound struggle uh, in people's lives in the city um, during the time period I was looking at. And so that's when I kind of theorized and came up with the idea of um, going to ground, um, which the title comes from uh, a book by J.A.K. Leslie um, called A Survey of Dar es Salaam, uh, written in the beginning of the 1960s. It's this kind of um, unusual social survey of the city um, that's a really interesting document of, of, of like the late 50s and early 60s. And um, in it, he casually says that, you know, people in Africans who live in the city um, frequently don't stay there all of the time, but they quote unquote, go to ground um, in the periphery. And he's specifically using that term to talk about kind of hiding out from authorities, um, trying to evade being captured and sent um, into rural areas. Um, and that it struck me that this was actually profoundly and precisely what African urbanization was, is this kind of uh, routine process of settling and unsettling in the city. Um, and that in order to sort of make a living, you cobble together um, wage work, um, uh, informal selling often, but also uh, a, a significant reliance on what you can get from uh, the region and from the environment in the periphery and how you can sort of extract that and bring it into the city. So um, Gone to Ground came together for me as meaning this kind of ongoing process of negotiating opportunities and struggles in the city and seeking out material relief in rural resources. So that was one definition. And then I realized that there were a couple other I also wanted to play off of. And another one was what happens in the city in the 70s and 80s um, when infrastructures that people rely on to get rid of waste, to um, travel to work, uh, to get food, uh, what happens when they are grounded, um, literally when they go offline as they frequently do uh, during this period and increasingly into the 1980s, um, long periods where water isn't accessible to people, um, electricity certainly, um, and food is provisioned in a lot of different ways. So what happens when these infrastructures are grounded? And then lastly, um, on a sort of more hopeful note, I think even though it's, it's kind of uh, becomes an impossibility by the, uh, by the 1980s, um, what do these experiences prompt in terms of rethinking nation building and uh, development in Tanzania? And, and, and actually, how do they kind of prompt an effort, even though it comes too late and is kind of thwarted by structural adjustment? How do these efforts prompt a thinking about a more grounded um, or from the ground up form of development that relies more on uh, natural resources in Tanzania? 
Um, so that that's kind of a broad overview um, of what gone to ground means to me and sort of where it came from. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Brownell. It's an absolutely fascinating book. Uh, and thank you for summarizing it and some of the key themes that you that you've drawn on right there. Um, I've got a couple of questions which kind of come to mind. One, one of them is this possible wider applicability of um, going to ground or gone to ground. I think you explain in your, in, in your book that Dar es Salaam has some distinctive features in its history in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, particularly um, as a result with the broader ideology of Ujamaa. But I wondered to what extent do you think this idea of going to ground has wide applicability? Wider applicability? Is this something that you possibly envisage could be um, something that could be applied or developed in other post-colonial African cities or even colonial ones as well? Yeah. Um, I certainly hope it resonates with people who work in other um, African cities, but also just even anywhere in the world to some degree. Um, I think that, yes, you're correct that that, that there is something very specific about this idea in Dar es Salaam. And I'll give you very quickly the context of that being that, of course, this is in the era of um, Ujamaa, where President Nerere has, um, starting in 1967, uh, announced the project of villagization, as I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners will know about. Um, but the village and sort of rural life is what is being particularly valorized in Tanzania during this period. And um, the state also enacts um, several different um, operations, as they're called, to try and extract people that they see as living in the city, uh, but unemployed and sort of not contributing to the the nation state to try and get them to decamp and live on the outside and on the periphery. And through this, um, the state frequently orders people to farm on this, on the outskirts of the city. So there is something very specific about sort of um, going to ground about Tanzanian politics and this political moment in the seventies and eighties, where it's not just people for their own needs going to kind of, uh, get resources from the periphery, but the state is also actually enforcing people to do it uh, to a large extent. And even, even um, corporations are having to do this, right? So um, banks have to start farms on the outside of town in order to sort of subsidize um, the livelihoods of their employees. Um, so there's something very profoundly specific about that for DAR, but I think it's, I hope it resonates, like I say, with people who work um, in other places to kind of, I think, capture a particular way that we should see urban space and cities in Africa writ large. Let's just say that for now, even though I think it could be a more, um, you know, it goes beyond just African cities, but that first of all, frequently, uh, as opposed to what we might call urban development in the West, um, that cities across the continent have generally been developed by the people who live in it, um, that there's not a lot of profound 
infrastructural development that have happened sometimes via the state. That's not always true, but that's um, uh, an artifact of colonial rule where uh, infrastructures were quite small in urban um, spaces and, and definitely uh, designated mostly for um, Europeans. So there's this obvious need for people to be able to provision for their lives um, in the periphery that I think over time is what constructs a lot of African cities. And as I talk about in my first chapter, um, that makes the designation or this idea of, of the sort of formal and informal parts of cities to be problematic if we think about them as kind of opposites, because actually um, the informal parts of cities, quote unquote, where um, Africans during the colonial period were sort of relegated to live and to make homes. Um, and then of course that sort of expands in the post-colonial period, that those are actually the parts of the city that often provision for the rest of the city. And so they are absolutely interdependent rather than kind of opposing parts of the city. There's no way for the formal city to survive without um, the you know, informal uh, periphery. Um, so I think that that should resonate with a lot of people who work on African cities and that to, to capture the kind of environmental aspect of that. There's of course, lots of other aspects to it that gone to ground might be an, a, a useful heuristic, a useful way to think about the process by which um, cities are constructed. Wonderful. You, you touch on one thing, which I think is, is very persuasive. That of course, that um, the, the Tanzanian government was very much, was with Ujamaa, was, was focused on, had an ideological drive to villagize uh, mm -hmm. from 1967. Uh, and this resulted in the breaking up of Dar es Salaam into dis different administrative districts instead of being governed as one urban space. And again, that this was about an ideology also rooted in the idea of self-help. I find this, of course, this is to a, certain to a certain degree, the idea of self-help in Ujamaa is, is well established. I wondered in the Dar es Salaam case, but what is there a point at which um, this idea of self-help isn't about pushing an ideology, but about capacity? Um, one of the things that really struck me um, in your book was about their response to the cholera epidemic in 1978, by which time the Tanzanian state is, well, really struggling. Um, in the aftermath of the OPEC crisis, at the aftermath of the, of the drought of, in the mid-1970s. And their response is essentially self-help yourselves. Again, can it, is this still ideologically, dri ideologically driven as it had been earlier in the decade? Or is this about, we just can't do anything about this anymore? Or do these kind of things meet somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. And um I, I I would say they meet somewhere in the middle. I, I, I would be I think I would be in trouble to uh, presume that Ujama uh, ideology is was all about pra practicality. Um, but I do think that we see that um, creep in by in some in some respects the early 70s and definitely um, by the 80s and, um, I think that 
the way in which people had to um, basically provision for themselves in the city is a good way to think about that. So um, I don't know that I think that we can ultimately in, disentangle um, the command to farm in the cities um, from sort of the ideological project of Ujamaa. You know, you have these uh, these books and these films that are telling people, you know, your rightful place um, is in is in the country farming. You should be doing this. Um, but I also think um, that Nerere is quite honest um, in many regards with the public. Of course, it's to his own, uh, I think, desired ends to be honest in this regard. But he's quite honest about how fragile the Tanzanian economy and future is. And so he does ask people to sort of, you know, farm their own food to, to um, sort of provision for themselves um, because I think it is a, a sort of practicality. I think a good example of how this plays out might be in my second chapter, or I guess it might be my third chapter, but my chapter on building materials. Um, that, you know, at the beginning of independence, um, Nereri makes a point of establishing a cement plant. Um, and I think we might quite easily understand the sort of valences of cement in the third world, right? It's this very practical, uh, building material, um, it's incredibly important to the, the quite actual material process of nation building for post-colonial nations, and it's quite expensive to import. Um, so I think cement probably had, um, had this kind of ideological framing when it first, when the cement plant is first established in the late 1960s and starts operating. But then because of the oil crisis and how expensive oil is to get, um, it becomes impossible to you know, produce that much cement. And the, as cement plant starts um, going into kind of chronic um, disrepair um, because of the need of spare parts uh, as well as oil. So then all of a sudden, you know, the state starts to support and really um, sort of proselytize um, building out of burnt bricks instead. The burnt brick I, I see in the newspapers is an ideological thing. It's this, okay, if we get together, if we can build our own kiln in every village, we can use the you know mud under our feet and we can make our own bricks. So this becomes something that sort of, I think symbolizes Ujamaa, but I, I also think it was absolutely just a practical shift where you, you all of a sudden had a bunch of people who had, um, you know, in, in Nereri's eyes, come to fetishize cement. Um, cement was a sign of modernity. It was a, a building material that was going to uplift, that was going to make these permanent homes. And, and now you had to sort of eschew that and, and say, no, you know, what you need is, is burnt bricks instead. Um, so I think that actually captures pretty well this, this kind of pivot that happens in the 70s and 80s um, that is an in, you know, sort of all bound together both practicality and ideology.
Yeah, I'm so glad you brought attention to, to your chapter on materializing your nation. That's uh, it's a, it's a real highlight and pioneering aspect of, of, of the book. Um, I want to move, kind of pivot now to something that you, that you haven't mentioned yet, um, but I think that features really strongly throughout your book, and this is changing gender dynamics. So many interesting dichotomies you draw on um, in the book. You mentioned the fact that the states, the post-colonial and the colonial, um, demonized single women in the city as tearing families apart. Um, also had the fact that the post-colonial state is encouraging um, people to farm for themselves. And this largely fell on um, women's shoulders in Dar es Salaam. Um, even though I think the Ujamaa ideal was for men to be doing the farming. Um, I could go on, but basically, I think just from these examples, I wondered what you thought about um, how did Ujamaa and how it was kind of implemented in Dar es Salaam seek to reinforce or change gender relations? Uh, and to what extent or in what ways did um, women and men transgress these ideals? That's a good question. And I think it goes kind of under analyzed in my book, frankly. Um, and I'm a little shy answering it just because I know there's so many people who work on DAR and, and touch on gender so much more <laughs> expertly than I do. But I do think it's important for it to be for, for gender and environment and gender and environmental history to be just, you know, sort of thought about in this context. And I, I think it comes out particularly because my book focuses on provisioning. So I think if I had thought about maybe other forms of engagements with landscape, it, the, the role of women uh, specifically, um, and I'm sort of doing the bad thing of conflating women and gender right here, but um, you know, women come through in the book because I think I'm focusing on how households um, basically could, are, are able to um, get what they need at the end of the day. And so often that falls on women. And so it actually does a nice job of showing how, how women both um, transform the landscape of DAR in certain ways, and also how they take advantage of the transformed landscape in DAR. So I'll, I'll focus on those two things really quickly. Um, one, you're absolutely right. I think it's mostly women who are kind of the member of the family that are, that are going to go and um, cultivate a small plot of land outside of Dar es Salaam while their um, husband uh, works in the city or even works you know, somewhere else. They might also go all the way back to their village if the village is nearby and tend to um, a farm there that would then, you know, bring in uh, the food uh, into the city from there. So I would say they're kind of very influential in sort of shaping this this kind of a semi-rural periphery around Dar um, and using that as a a. a a way to sort of sustain life in the city. Um, they're also the ones that seem to be um, doing a lot of the uh, provisioning in black markets and going to markets and trying to figure out where you can find food um, when you can't get it from your normal um, sources. Um, and so 
they sort of get to know the landscape of the city this way. And, and for the most part, these women are going to be walking the city, right? They are, um, in, in my chapter on waiting for the bus, I talk about how um, the bus in particular could be a really sort of tough place to try and get on you to 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 get on the bus and to go somewhere um was could be either expensive or simply a kind of um competitive like physically competitive thing to get a seat on the bus um so a lot of women uh are just taking up space in the landscape of dar um walking to and from um and and sort of uh, gathering things for their lives I would say where they take advantage of the transformed landscape of the city um, is that as, and this actually ties specifically in with that chapter on waiting for the bus, as uh, the transportation infrastructure in Dar becomes much more fragmented and um, basically a bunch of buses uh, are in disrepair and can't run anymore. So you have a city that's kind of constantly waiting for the bus to get to work or to get home. Um, women come into those spaces and take them up as we know, as, as anyone who's really gone to a city in Africa can attest, there's a lot of spaces for informal selling and that's not just space for women, but I think they in particular um, find those spaces and kind of take them over and take advantage of the fact that the failing bus system means that people are going to be in these spaces and that they will be able to kind of sell to them in those spaces. So I, I think they do, I, I think in that way, women are also shaping the landscape of the city and coming into these places that have been um, altered by um, the sort of infrastructural collapse and finding ways to make it to their advantage. So some of the women that I interviewed, you know, you can, uh, I think it's also a sort of common thing to hear, but frequently their work in the informal sector, you know, selling donuts or, um, you know, something like that is equally or even more lucrative um, than their husband's work especially by the 1980s when wages are really depressed. Um, and so those become really important um, ways to also provision for families. And like I say, I think sort of transform the landscape of the city as they're doing that. Um, the, I'd say the final thing on gender dynamics that I don't, I don't really touch on and I didn't learn enough about, but I think it's <clears throat> worth pursuing a bit is, um, is charcoal. So char charcoal as a fuel is a particularly urban fuel. Um, for the most part, people in rural areas use um, just uh, firewood. Uh, so not something that has been transformed into charcoal. And firewood and firewood collecting tends to be uh, women's work. And I think that that happens on the periphery of Dar and these kind of villages that make up um, the edges of the city, um, there's still the possibility of collecting firewood for, you know, into maybe the 70s and 80s. Um, but then the charcoal industry really takes out, and I think the charcoal industry is a much more male dominated 
form of energy and energy sector. Um, I don't know that this is true across the board, but I think that that is an interesting gender dynamic to this kind of firewood versus charcoal difference. Um, I didn't learn enough about that to really draw it out in the book at all, but um, I'd love it if someone else did. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you, you mentioned in that last answer, um, the failing bus system, you talked about infrastructural collapse. One of the words that you've avoided and you make a point of avoiding in the book as much as you can is the word crisis. Uh, and in your conclusion, you make a very provocative um, and well-grounded, um, I should say, um, provocative in this instance is not a bad thing, of course. Um, you're challenging Africanist historians and some of the language and literature used by them, um, particularly because of their use of the word crisis. And kind of in response, you, you, you say, and this is a quote, I'm interested in failure as process, not as diagnostic. And I just wanted to know, what did you mean, what do you specifically mean by this, just, just for our listeners so that they, they can understand your own views on this? Um, and also, how does this kind of interest challenge prevailing notions of crisis by, used by Africanist historians? Yeah, so I, I felt, I definitely felt a little shy putting that conclusion out there because I think that you know, on a different day, I could write something very different. But I thought talking about failure is kind of a, felt a bit like a third rail in African history. And there's good reasons for that, um, which I talk about in the conclusion, um, that in civilizational narratives, you know, the sort of slotting of uh, African peoples and the continent, um, as a sort of quote unquote failures in different ways is extremely problematic and African history as a discipline is, is essential in, in rewriting that history and correcting that. Um, and to focus on failure also, you know, tends to uh, fulfill the expectations of uh, what kind of what people consume in the West via media about Africa, right? That it is a, f a bunch of failed states um, and that, you know, failure is just kind of, you know, in the water or something, right? So there's all these reasons why I think failure should be handled incredibly carefully and um, thoughtfully uh, as a word, as, as something to focus on. Um, but I think, what I was interested in was kind of contrasting failure with crisis. And for me, crisis is a word that tends to be a bit paralyzing. Um, crisis is something that is usually this kind of big catastrophe that happens um, where experts and expert knowledge come in to intervene and to diagnose uh, uh, what went wrong and to try and fix it. Um, and that crisis is about building a narrative that sort of justifies the ends. That's not how I think necessarily African historians use the term. That's, that's kind of, I think, historically a process that has happened a lot. Um, and so for me, I was wondering if I could think with failure um, as something that is an ongoing process that happens, um, whether we like it or not, and 
how it might actually animate thinking on a different level. So thinking more, as I say, more closer to the ground. So if I'm interested in, you know, the bus system falling apart or um, waste not getting picked up, um, what kinds of stories might I be able to tell if I'm looking at these kinds of everyday obstacles and failures um, that a kind of larger sort of specter of urban crisis might miss. Um, and what then can we also learn about people on the ground and how they made their lives possible if we put failure more front and center? Um, so I don't, I certainly hope uh, my book doesn't come across as a narration of failure, but failure in this kind of quotidian way of living in a city and having to deal with things going offline and, and ultimately um, sort of massive um, failure of urban systems by, by the 1980s. Um, how does, how can we maybe come to see the sort of creativity and um, intelligence of how people make their lives possible by, by highlighting this? Yes, I completely agree with you. It's, it's an overused word, and I think it's, it's a dangerous word in that I think when it's used in the West, particularly, it's like there's a crisis, we must intervene in some way. And it's a very, it's, it's a way, it's a tool of making very paternalistic and interventionist uh, right. attitudes, which I think which you are absolutely right to fight against. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for um, discussing your book with us. Before I let you go, though, I'm absolutely fascinated by um, the little bit I've heard so far about your forthcoming project, um, Stories from the Substrate. Basically, this is a, a final question. Like, what are you working on now? What is Stories from the Substrate? The floor sure. is yours to, to tell us what, to, to, to what you're working on now. Yeah, so um, I'm on research leave at the moment, um, which is a bit of a farce <laughs> in these COVID times um, because I can't go anywhere and I can't really make it to archives, but I also just had a baby, so that probably wouldn't happen anyways. But nevertheless- Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I actually think it's kind of been nice that I've um, not been able to be too ambitious because it's meant that I've gotten to do a lot of really interesting reading for this next project and to think a lot about the project before I dive into collecting, I guess. Um, so uh, the next project is um, basically I want to look at um, East Africa from the soil, like I say, and um, think about soil. The way I'm, I'm framing it for now is that it's actually going to be a media history of soil. And what I mean by that is not history via newspapers or radio or television, but soil as a medium. Um, so more, soil as a medium for um, containing and transferring uh, really important and vital things for life in East Africa. And um, what I have seen, you know, I think soil comes up a lot in East African history, um, frequently from the perspective of looking at um, colonial development projects uh, to try and curb erosion and the political effects of these projects. So you know, not to be overly glib, but I think soil comes into East African history mostly as soil science. Um, 
And so what I'm hoping to do with this project is to think about soil in a fair amount of different ways. So um, having different uh, chapters on um, things like termites and termite mounds and um, how important um, the soil from termite mounds uh, have been to communities, but also of course the termite as a kind of uh, pest of empire. Um, uh, chapters on uh, salt gardens of Katwe in um, Western Uganda that are cultivated and have been for hundreds of years and um, produce soil uh, that has uh, really high um, sodium content and is used to, to make salt. Um, or looking at um, the kaolin deposits outside of Dar es Salaam that are mined and used for making pottery. And, um, and in fact, calpectates, so uh, something that is used to soothe um, upset stomachs. Um, so, and sand mining in, in, on, along the coast of Kenya and, 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 and sort of how that sand is then being transported into Nairobi to, um, to be used for building projects. So the actual, you know, kind of use and consumption of, of soil in all of these different ways uh, to sustain life in the region. Um, and because soil, I think, is such an important thing that's getting a lot of attention right now in the era of climate change. It's become this sort of, uh, a lot of hopes are being buried in the soil right now about its capacity to um, um, be a, a sink for carbon, um, among other things. Um, so that's the kind of uh, short description of what I hope the project becomes. Of course, there's a lot of uh, metaphorical richness in soil too. Um, so uh, that makes sense in the context of East Africa as well, of claiming to have autochthonous uh, belonging to certain areas to be of the soil. Um, so I'll be sort of seeking some of that stuff out too. That sounds wonderful. I uh, really look forward to seeing it come to fruition. Um, for now, that's all we've got time for. Um, thank you again to Dr. Emily Brownell um, for joining us today. Um, we'll put some links in the description for this podcast. So if you want to read more about more of Dr. Brownell's work uh, and to find out more about her book, please click on those. Um, thank you also to Renee Mandeville, who's been working in the background to make sure this podcast runs smoothly. Um, thank you to the listener for listening. Uh, and once again, my name is Philip Gooding and you've been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world. 